Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day, everyone. It is the 2nd of September. It is episode 183. Huge show coming up. Very... Uh, Political heavyweight heavy show, I would say, Pete. So on this week's episode, we've got Senator James Patterson. We are going to be talking to him about another big win for the Wolverines this week in Scott Morrison. I mean, Patterson says, don't use these words, but basically Scott Morrison has torn up Victoria's belt and road deal with China. We're going to be talking to him about that. A few of the other things that are coming out this week about uh, Chinese interfere, uh, well, the Chinese Communist Party interference in Australia. We're also going to get him talking about the situation in Victoria with stage four lockdowns. Now, one thing that we didn't have the chance because we interviewed James on Monday was to talk about the IPA's poll, which is just out today, and people can read the results at ipa.org.au, showing that 54% of Victorians agree with the statement the Victorian government should pull out of the Belt and Road deal with China. So, you know, public support is with Scott Morrison on that one and against Daniel Andrews. So, really interesting discussion, really enjoyed it. Also going to be talking to David Limbrick, Liberal Democrat MP and friend of the Young IPA podcast. He is one of the Victorian crossbenchers that was uh, tasked with the idea of deciding whether or not Victoria's state of emergency powers would continue. Obviously, Limbrick, being a Liberal Democrat and awesome, awesome guy, was fully against it. If you haven't had the chance, check out the speech he gave against it last night. Unfortunately, mm. the thing did pass. So, I don't know. We still talk to him about the big picture stuff, why he was against it, and what this all means. So, that was a really good interview, Terry. So, Pete, anything else you're looking forward to in the show? Well, I just think James and David are my two favourite politicians in Australia at the moment. I hope I'm not forgetting anyone, but they would be my two favourite politicians in Australia at the moment. So, it was great to speak to both of them. Uh, of course, we should mention, James, we're recording on Wednesday because we wanted to see how the, the state of emergency vote went. Yep. Uh, and the thing I liked, you know... David Limbrick didn't get any one-on-one time with Big Dan because he said that he would never, ever, ever support the state of emergency going for a day longer than it was necessary. So unfortunately for David, no one-on-one time with the um, with the emperor. Yeah, and you talk about how you are a huge fan of James Patterson and David Limbrick because I'll tell you who I'm not a big fan of, and that is Fiona Patton, who is the member of the Reason Party here in Victoria. She was once the libertarian great hope in Victorian parliaments. And she was the reason that the state of emergency powers got over. I mean, we had a Greens MP come in off maternity leave to come into the parliament to vote, yes, on the state of emergency, but it is the Greens, so you would expect it. Don't ever let the Greens say that they care about civil liberties ever again, because they don't. But Fiona Patton would be someone that you would have thought would have stayed against. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously things went downhill once you change the name of the party from the sex party to the reason party. Things are never going to be the same again. You certainly lost Peter Gregory's vote. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So we saw, uh, you did mention the Greens MP, Samantha Ratnam, coming in. I noticed she managed, she brought her two-month-old child with her just to create some magic memories. The time me and mummy went to work and extinguished democracy. Um, So that was great. And gave Uh, me the debt bill I'm going to pay off for the rest of my life. Exactly right. So anyway, we should, you know, get into it. The extension gives health, uh, Chief Health Officer Brett Sutton the power to extend and impose COVID-19 restrictions uh, for another six months. Initially, the government asked for 12 months, James, as you know, um, which was so obviously an ambered claim, don't you reckon? Was that ever serious or was that just to get this result? I'm sure they wouldn't have turned it down if offered. <laughs> oh, no, no. They have never. They wouldn't turn and, down Yeah, maybe it's power. a case of like asking too much to settle for what you think you actually can get. Yeah. Uh, so uh, and it went so the debate went till two a.m. last night, which is which is as we mentioned while we're recording a day late. Um, 
Now, the opposition were unsuccessful in their attempt to have the state of emergency powers extended month to month. I noticed, James, the most dis- not the most disappointing aspect of this, but one of the most aspe- disappointing aspects was the Peter Gregory clause wasn't included, uh, which we talked about either last week or the week before, and that was that you don't get extra powers to deal with, a- or you can have as many extra powers to deal with the pandemic as you want, as long as you weren't the cause of 99% of that pandemic. So, unfortunately, it doesn't look like... That was uh, that was included in the legislation. Yeah, it would which... have been tough to see Daniel Andrews adopt the Gregory clause. Mm. And it's a shame. I, we actually forgot to ask David about it because I think he could have maybe got that there. But I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? It's not just like this government has handled the pandemic poorly. It's actually we've just given heaps of power to the body that is basically the cause of 99% of the problems we're having now. That's, that's what we've done. So happy days here in the state of Victoria. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like uh, the CHRO can still do all of these extraordinary things for another six months and they're not accountable to a parliament. They've got to uh, submit the health advice once every month. So who knows what that means? But yeah, uh, yeah, it's just a really depressing day and a really depressing week. And all right, so moving on to what we want to talk about next, which is the fact that Victorians seem to like it, which is even more depressing. So we had a Roy Morgan poll out last week. And look, apologies to people in the rest of the country who are like, can you please talk about something else other than Victoria? But like, unfortunately, this is pretty huge stuff. And we are going to get into why this is so bad for the rest of the country later. But a Roy Morgan snap SMS survey last week on six of Victoria's stage four restrictions show that large majorities of Victorians in support of five of the six and even the one that was like 50-50 which was the ability to visit the homes of immediate family members only 43% of Melbourne say people should be able to visit their family 43 and then the other ones like uh, when you think about stage four and the draconian lockdowns I think everyone was most up in arms about the idea of an 8pm curfew and also a restriction on being able to travel five kilometres away from your house Uh, the 8pm curfew 72% of people support that and the idea that you can't travel more than five kilometers away from your house, 71% of people supported that. So when you read that, you just go, what's going on with this state? Like, I don't, I, there's a lot of theories coming forward and there's the shy Tory syndrome. I mean, these are the same people that told Roy Morgan that uh, Bill Shorten was going to win. These are the same people that told pollsters in America that Clinton was going to win. So maybe we're having the same result here. Uh, I, I just think the level of fear about this virus that the media pump out and that politicians pump out means that you've just got a whole lot of people just saying, please, just do whatever you can, just keep me safe. I mean, there's other polls coming out of the US showing that people think that 5 or 6% of the US population have died from coronavirus, which is just completely inaccurate. But the fact that people think that means there's, there's, there's a level of hysteria in the community. Pete, I don't know if you have any theories. Uh, well, I David Limbrick, I didn't realise it was a 100% SMS poll and David Limbrick raises a really good point in our interview and I don't want to steal his thunder, but I'm going to. And he says, you know, the kind of people that respond to a SMS from a random are the kind of people that participated in this poll and perhaps that skewed the results a little bit and perhaps we don't have reason to be so disheartened. I was, when I saw the results, James, a little bit depressed because I thought, you know, if we had an election now, the, it's so sad to think about it, but Dan Andrews would actually win. Uh, then I realised Dan Andrews will never let us have an election again, so no. that cheered me up. Uh, and what I did notice though, James, and you mentioned this earlier, was with the, uh, with the, the measures that had their varying levels of support, the ones that had really high levels of support were ones like masks and the, the um, you know, not being able to go up to eight o'clock, but visiting family members had the least support 
Right, and on the one hand, it's, you know, it's quite sweet to people. People think they really want to visit their families and they, they think that rule shouldn't be there. But realistically, you're vastly more likely to transfer the disease sitting in a room in a con- confined space for a long period of time, which you would do if you were visiting a family member, than if you went on a walk by yourself at 8.01pm uh, at night. So, you know, I mean, stop press, people aren't engaging with this logically. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it, once again, that sort of confirms the fact that, as you sort of talked about, people aren't really... I don't know. Like that just makes no sense to me. So I don't think that I'm not sure people are engaging with this as rationally as they should be. What an insight. Yeah, I, look, I, I just think it's a level of hysteria about this. And then, you know, I wonder because there's now these ideas and maybe state of emergency or state of disaster doesn't end on September 13. Maybe it stretches for another few weeks. So maybe the public will turn on that. The idea that, hey, you told us six weeks and this was the worst six weeks of my life and you promised it would end. I don't know. This is me hoping against hope because I don't want to think of Victorians as uh, people so easily led by government bodies. I thought Australian larrikinism and suspicion of authority was cemented in the culture. But, you know, this is the kind of stuff that tells me it might not be as true as I thought it was. Oh, absolutely. Like, I, you know, you always know Victoria is the most left-wing state in Australia and I still love it anyway. Um, but that idea about authoritarian, anti-authoritarianism and larrikinism... <laughs> I don't know, mate. That's I reckon. I mean, myths are always not 100% true, but that doesn't seem to be true at all uh, at this stage. But I'm still leaning on David Lindbergh's SMS theory. That's what I'm I'm holding. He he was just well, I won't give it away, but he was like that doesn't match my experience of the community. So yeah, I still hold out a little bit more hope, taking up the more optimistic position, which is probably our natural states. Yeah, well, the one thing that sort of happened with that over the weekend and is uh, rumoured to be happening this weekend as well is a few protests. And I know, Pete, you wanted to talk about that. Right, yeah. So protests planned on the weekend in the CBD. Uh, Let me just find my spot on this. Sorry, guys. I'm operating off a new system today. But yeah, planned in the CBD. We've seen protests uh, in Dandenong for the last couple of weeks every day, Dandenong being a suburb of Melbourne. We saw one in Broadie during the week as well, Broadmeadows. Uh, another suburb of Melbourne, which actually sort of reminded me of the good old days at Melbourne Victory, James. There was a few flares thrown around, which I thought was uh, creative, you know, it wasn't create a bit of beauty and colour rather than just, you know, talk about a pandemic. So it was nice to see a few kids throwing flares around to remind us of the good old days at Melbourne Victory. Anyway, um, look, I mean, the thing about this is the, the um, what's the word, the hypocrisy or the, the double standard for the Black Lives Matter protest and the COVID protest, which uh, I know you're going to speak about later, James, so I won't go over the top of that. And also just some of the coverage, some of the coverage in like media outlets that, you know, you don't, I don't agree with, I don't expect them to agree with people who are doing this, but, you know, obviously there are elements of this protest that are crazy conspiracy theorists, but there are also people in these protests who are worried about their children self-harming and to just to say that everyone who supports this protest is, you know, a 5G, you know, moron who doesn't have any, you know, sense of uh, connection with reality to me is a bit much. And, 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 you know, we've seen that a little bit. I know I read a Guardian thing today, which just the description of the people participating in this protest was just so disrespectful. And so, yeah, it's just like dehumanising of, of people who have, you know, pretty genuine and legitimate con- concerns. And um, I don't think, you know, they have to be described like that. Yeah, uh, if you think if- that, if you think like me, that coronavirus is a serious issue, but businesses should be able to open safely and, you know, we need more civil liberties, that doesn't make you a conspiracy theorist. That just makes you someone that's aware of everything that's going on right now. Yeah, 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 exactly right. And especially from like a newspaper that, 
has for you know 10 years said the world's about to end because of climate change i don't think you need to be going on about conspiracy theories anyway mate let's get on <laughs> james loved that one let's get on to recessions uh, yeah, so this is where it links to the rest of the country. So Josh Frydenberg today is expected to announce that Australia is in its first recession in decades and has suffered its worst ever quarterly drop to the economy since records began, uh, which is bad, just to let everyone know that is a bad thing. And then <laughs> the, on the back of that, the, one of the reasons is because of Victoria's stage four lockdowns and you think about the JobKeeper strategy and how much of a cost that is, I'm not saying it's a bad policy, but I'm saying it is a huge cost. Victoria is set to make 60% up, make up 60% of JobKeeper uh, claims by the end of 2020 because businesses just won't, I mean, they're not operating now. Certainly September 13, not everything's going to be back to normal. The restrictions are going to be lasting for a very, very, very long time here. And Victoria is really holding back the rest of the country. And I mean, you want to relate this also to border closures and what tourism dollars are being lost yep. and what trade dollars are being lost right now. It's the whole situation that we're in. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many clear things that people can do, uh, that premiers can be doing to in, in improve Australia's economic outlook, but they're just not doing it because polls. Yeah, that's true. I think, look, to, to Feidenberg was interesting. He said that, you know, we're not as bad as the UK, which has had a contraction of around 20%. We've had a contraction of only 6%. Uh, and he said France's their contraction has been around 14%. So he said, you know, we're not as bad as other countries around the world. But this is the biggest... This contraction represented the worst economic downturn since records began in the 1950s. So it's pretty bad. Um, what I would say, James, to take the positive out of this, this is now an opportunity that people like you and I and people out there in the community have got to seize, and that is to try and make the case for less regulation, you know, less labour market regulation, lower energy costs, things like that, things we always talk about. The IPA had research out this week, the great, or might have been last week, the great key at Hussey. Uh, red tape prevented up to 398,000 businesses and 894,000 jobs paying a total of 26 billion in wages from being created over the last 15 years. So that's not even the crisis at the moment. Um, so, you know, small business people, they have a lot of sympathy in the community at the moment. A lot of people are really feeling for them. Now is the time to say, even in non-pandemic times, it's really hard for us and to make the cases for, you know, reducing regulation because, you know, that's how we're going to get out of this. That's how we're going to get out of this recession. Yeah. I mean, not to say that this one I'm about to hit you with is a smoking gun and like it's going to solve everything, but the absolute least they can do to help out hospitality is to get rid of those nanny state laws about drinking outside and let restaurants and bars have outside seating. Because yeah. you don't want people sitting inside. You want people sitting outside. Yeah. And then, you know, the Australia starts looking like those cool European towns you go to and <laughs> everything's good again. Can you imagine like Chapel Street or, you know, all the great like uh, socializing areas of the capital yeah. cities, if you can eat outside and drink outside, it'd be the best. That's exactly right, James. I don't know. Look, I think you're optimistic about uh, how Australians behave when they're drinking compared to how Europeans behave when you're drinking. I'm saying it would, saying it would be awesome. I'm not saying it would be amazingly cultured. But one thing I do want to check in with James before we move on, I just want to make sure no public sector worker has lost their job and, and their wages have continued to increase. Is that is that true? Can I just check in with you Well, on they've that? certainly added uh, a fair few thousand jobs to the Australian public service oh. and, you know, just we, we can always take a sigh that the public service have not felt the brunt of... <laughs> Thank God for that. I didn't... Yeah. Yeah, I was really worried that that might be a, an issue, so I'm glad that it's not. All right. 
All right, let's um, move on to America. Uh, so the American election coming up in November. Trump was gone. He is now not gone. I think he's taken the lead on sports bet. He's certainly tied in most betting markets. Uh, and it's happening again. 2016 is happening again. Maybe a bit earlier than we thought, but the unlosable election is being lost in front of our very eyes. So, Pete, what have you made of the last couple of weeks? Well, I mean, we had Greg on the show. Greg Sheridan on the show a few weeks ago, and he said that it was... You know, Republicans are always able to make uh, political hay out of, you know, riots and criminality and unrest on the streets. But so far, Trump hadn't, hadn't been able to do that. I think now, by now, he has been able to do that. And Americans are starting to go, hang on, what is this just going to happen forever? So I think he's, um, I think he's benefiting from that. I think, as you mentioned, you know, it's tightened up a little bit. Um, then, of course, there's the Biden factor. You know, like, I, um, I've got, uh, we've got some footage here of Biden this week. COVID has taken this year, just since the outbreak, has taken more than 100 years. Look, here's the lives. It's just, it's, I mean, you think about it. More lives this year than any other year for the past 100 years. So I didn't tell James I was going to play that. He sort of said it made him feel sad, but I think it's, you know, it's important for, you know, for us to say that, that, you know, this guy is not fit for office. And I think that's going to clearly impact their vote and then there's the harris factor you know like there's if you vote for biden you're probably really voting for harris because i mean it doesn't seem like he's going to make four or eight years uh, and all those things are contributing to trump's uh upsurge but so you're you're calling it is that what you're what i'm hearing uh i'm not calling it but like i mean there's months to go and who the hell knows anything about the u.s election but uh yeah i, I think it's more the riots than biden at the moment i mean uh, the situation in America, it's pretty grim. There's a lot of anger out on the streets, a lot of yeah. violence. But then there's this... Uh, you know, Tucker Carlson used this line in a recent rant where he goes, Joe Biden in his speech said, do you reckon these riots would happen if the Democrats won? Which sort of has a double-edged sword in saying, like, these are only happening because if you uh, Trump is elected. So if Trump is re-elected, they're going to continue. It's like kind of like, a hey, you know, nice country. Be a shame if something happened to it. <laughs> yeah. So I think people are like, hang on, this is not right wing violence. This is clearly left wing violence. And if we don't vote for Trump, uh, sorry, if we don't vote for Biden, there's the implicit threat that they're going to continue. And I think people are feeling a bit gaslit about it. Yeah. Okay. That's that's uh, that's interesting. I sort of hadn't considered that a major factor. I think economically as well, they probably back Trump to get the economy back on track. Uh, a little bit more now you sort of mentioned it there a little bit imagine the reaction if trump actually does win that does not yeah, even be i mean it, it'd be the greatest day in the history of twitter i might just uh completely not leave my desk for the entire day twitter would be amazing if facebook was good in 2016 twitter's going to be something else uh, last Oof. thing we're going to talk about before we get into heroes and villains because we are running long. So there's been an update right. in Google and Facebook versus the Australian government and News Limited. This uh, tidal wide of media regulation, uh, tidal wide fight of um, media regulation. So the update is this: Facebook and Google have said, okay, if we are going to be forced to pay News Corp and all these other media websites for their news articles, then we're just simply not going to publish Australian news websites on our platforms, which uh, was literally what everyone said was going to happen. So I don't know why anyone's surprised. I don't know why the government's feeling intimidated. I thought this was the obvious next 
thing that was going to happen. But if you shake down, try to shake down Google and Facebook, don't be surprised if they just leave. Well, I think you're selling yourself short, mate, because you, I mean, you said this was going to happen. You specifically said on the Young IPA podcast that this is what would happen. So, you know, give yourself a round of applause. This is James Bolt seeing the future. Yeah. Also, the sun will rise tomorrow. Sorry, if anyone wants to get on that one as well. I don't know why you find it so difficult to accept praise, James. This is something we have to work on. Uh, anyway, <laughs> what was I going to say? Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, it's happened. It's the, by the way, this is the, the rule hasn't come in yet. Like, this is the, the period of, you know, submissions and stuff like that. So this is where they, consultation, they call it. So, you know, it's, it's, this is part of the back and forth that occurs. Now, I, a, a quote from Will Easton, who is the Facebook's Managing Director for Australia and New Zealand, says that the law misunderstands the dynamics of the internet and will damage, do damage to the very news organisations the government is trying to protect. He said he reckons Facebook sent 2.3 billion clips from Facebook's news feed back to Australian news websites worth around $200 million during the first five months of this year. Now, I mean, he could just be putting a bit of mayo on that, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I sort of, I don't quite get it. Like, surely they get a lot of traffic from these websites. Um, but yeah, and, and Google has said that it will dr- dramatically impact searches if this goes through. So I don't know why, like, it just seems a weird thing for a coalition government to do, like now as well, like who cares right at the moment? Um, yeah, exactly. Odd. Just this idea of, hey, you, company, you're too successful, cough it up. Yeah. We, like, we need co- to get that in- from a coalition government. It's just weird. Yeah. So we, the negotiations between these two businesses are not fair. So we're going to get in the middle and regulate them and organise them for them. I just, yeah, don't get it. Heroes and villains this week. This is the Grunt the Pig Freedom Snort for people to stand up for liberty around the world. Pete, who is your hero? Well, my hero is someone who's often been a hero and it's just a subject of talk on this show. And that is the great Bob Catter. Uh, he gave, so James Patterson, who we spoke to um, about this, the government gave the green light to an inquiry into foreign interference at tertiary institutions. Now, Bob Catter and Barnaby Joyce had a press conference on Monday to discuss the inquiry. Bob Catter came in wearing a crocodile mask, a crocodile oh, face mask. Oh, there we go. There we go. Which is already a power move. Uh, and said this. Universities should be a nursery of ideas and a garden of freedom. And they've turned it into a pigsty. <clears throat> Uh, if you return the universities to their proper functions and uh, not being prostitutes, and, and they're not really prostitutes. Prostitutes only sell their body. These people have sold their body and their souls. Now, I don't think I have anything to add to that. I think Bob's spoken for himself, except to say, God bless Bob Catter. There we go. All right, my hero this week. Uh, so back to Victoria, 13 medical practitioners have written to the state government and saying uh, stage four restrictions have to be lifted on September 13, uh, which is just good to see. Hopefully the government can listen to the medical community on this one. It's important to trust the experts. And the reasons they bring up is because they're treating patients who are extremely depressed about not being able to visit grandchildren. A lot of, uh, so three of them are also uh, specialize in cancer treatments. So they say people are missing appointments or just simply not getting screened. And mm. I mean, this kind of factors into the idea that we've been talking about on the show. And I mean, basically everyone's been talking about, which is if you look at coronavirus through a single lens, you are going to only think about what's today's daily increase in numbers. But then you think about the offsets, people too scared to go to hospital and help themselves. Maybe those deaths down the line potentially outnumber the deaths that we're seeing from coronavirus. And you can't look at this through just one single lens. 
That's exactly right. There was a, a uh, I was going to mention it earlier, but we didn't get to it, but a study conducted in the UK a few weeks ago, which found that 2,700 people were dying per week because of the lockdown. And there's all these studies that are going on that are finding, uh, that are raising the question that perhaps the lockdown, even an, on a lives basis, is not necessarily the best option. So it's, yeah, it's good that, it's good that, um, and we're seeing more and more medical people come out and say, you know, hey, this this can't go on forever, which is good. Yeah, uh, and one thing yeah. I do hear is the people going, okay, well, hospitals aren't locked down, but yeah, the natural the natural fear climate means people do not want to go to hospitals. So when you keep saying it's stage four, if you keep saying like this is such a killer virus, people are going to be too scared to leave their homes to help themselves. Oh yeah, that's about Tim Wilson who who came out against the uh, lockdown earlier this week said that the cancer diagnoses, diagnoses, whatever the word is, uh, are down 33%, which is, I mean, it would be great if that was just because there's less cancer, but in reality, it means that people aren't getting aren't getting diagnosed. And with cancer, you obviously need to get it diagnosed as soon as possible. So anyway, the point is it's open to question. And as we keep saying, why can't you tell us what your calculations are? David exactly. Lindbergh, as we talk about later, well, I won't, I'll, I'll just let David explain it, but yeah, check out the interview about that. All right, let's move on to villains. Let's do. Let's move on to villains. So villains, as we know, is the grunt. Oh no, that's uh, that's bloody the other one. Uh, the Extinction Rebellion fake nudie run. Roll the tape, Mitch. As Extinction Rebellion protests enter their sixth day. There you go. So that was a fake nudie run held in Melbourne uh, in October, back in better days when we used to protest the environment. Um, and it was a fake nudie run. So anyone who stood up against freedom this week, we give the Extinction Rebellion fake nudie run award. James, who's your villain? Assistant Commissioner in, again, Victoria, I'm sorry to uh, interstate people, but the Assistant Commissioner of Police here in Victoria, Luke Cornelius, uh, went viral this week talking about the protests that were being planned. He called them, uh, I don't know if I can use this word on a family program, so I mean, here comes a word in 321 if you want to shield any children's ears, but 321, he said, batshit, crazy nonsense, people need to wake up to themselves. All right, went viral. Clicks, views, love heart reactions, stuff like that. How good is he? Here's the same police commissioner on Black Lives Matter protests. We respect the right everyone has to protest peacefully and lawfully. It's being played for grubs, we are. Seriously. Like, how is, uh, you know, does coronavirus discriminate based on people's political beliefs? Is that seriously what we're supposed to believe here? Because how does the Black Lives Matter protest, well, that's not really a public health risk. Those people aren't batshit crazy. But if you protest anything else, you're batshit crazy. The, there's absolutely no excuse for that. I get that the you know his police said he's got to follow orders and stuff like that, but he you know he should say I understand the hypocrisy of this, but we have to do this X Y Z. Um, yeah, there's no excuse for that. There's no excuse for like he's you know police are meant to police, and I get that you know it's a difficult job, but he's just trying to cultivate public opinion to support the work of the police. He's trying to demonise a certain segment of the population, um, which is just not what they're meant to do. They're meant to enforce the law. So yeah, there's that's. Yeah, I can't. If you are not on the show next week, James, because you said that word, that'll be why. But um, yeah, no, there's no excuse for that. Good villain. Have you got any more on that or should I move on to the next one? What's your villain, Pete? Okay, my villain is the uh, my villain is the Global Times in China, which is obviously an, appara- an apparatus of the CCP. China suspended barley imports from Australia earlier this week because they found a few weeds in the grain, allegedly, a few days before they banned imports from an abattoir in Queensland because they found traces of a drug used on dogs and cats. Uh, imagine important, importing dangerous pathogens to another country. Um, now, part of... Obviously, this is part of the growing tensions with regards to... The Morrison move on Victoria's BRI uh, in in Australia. Now, the Global Times in, in in response had five pieces attacking Australia. James, five. 
They said, here's a quote, further decoupling from China would not send China back, but will only make sure the former Singaporean Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew's famous statement is more likely to come true, and that is that Australia will become the poor white trash of Asia. He also said Australia... The, the, the paper also said Australia are a nervously alerted bird and had a cartoon of a kangaroo and a penguin. No, a kangaroo and a panda, which depicted the kangaroo uh, as a weakling, which I found very, very offensive. Anyway, I just wanted to point out to the Global Times that Australia's GDP per capita is 57,373.69 US dollars in 2018, and China's GDP per capita is 9,770.85 US dollars in 2018. So that is six times more. Uh, now, that's nothing to do with the industry and intelligence of the Chinese people and everything to do with the horrendous governance of the Chinese Communist Party and the absolutely homicidal economic and political system that they support. Uh, and... And it's supported by its useful idiots like organisations such as the Global Times. So back in your box, Global Times. You need us more than we need you. Get your hand off it. Penny Gregory with a quick muffs. All right, let us go to our interviews with Senator James Patterson and then David Limbrick. Okay, we're now welcome back onto the show. One of the good friends of the Young IPA podcast, Senator James Patterson. Senator James Patterson, welcome back. Thank you, gentlemen. Always a pleasure. Uh, so last week, Scott Morrison tore up the upcoming Belt and Road uh, agreement between Victoria and China. Now, why is this such a good thing? Well, you've jumped the gun just slightly there yet. Uh, the Prime Minister hasn't yet torn up the agreement, but uh, certainly he's put in place the mechanism to allow the federal government to do that. And I would be thoroughly unsurprised if the federal government followed through uh, with that intention and did tear it up. Uh, essentially what the government has done, which I know has surprised a lot of people, this wasn't already the case, but he's, we're proposing a law that requires all of Australia's international relations to be set here in Canberra by the federal government. And if states want to engage in any kind of international relations, they have to seek the approval uh, and permission effectively of the federal government to engage in that. And the federal government will retain power to veto uh, any agreements that it, that it thinks is not in the national interest. And clearly one of the ones that's been raised most often with us by the community of concern is the Belt and Road Agreement between Victoria and the Chinese Communist Party, which um, frankly, uh, the Andrews government shouldn't have entered into just because of their lack of expertise in this area, let alone actually looking at the, the detail of it. We interviewed Greg Sheridan on the Young IPA podcast a few weeks ago, James, and he made that exact same point saying that um, essentially Andrews was a provincial leader being taken for a ride by the CCP. Now, reports came out that Andrews refused to listen to warnings from top intelligence and security officials uh, regarding the Belt and Road Agreement. What was your reaction to that? Uh, I think, frankly, unsurprised because Daniel Andrews has shown very little interest in this. Uh, he's supremely confident in his ability to engage in these sorts of arrangements without seeking any of the information he needs, whether that's from DFAT or ASIO or anyone else. Uh, he's so confident of his abilities, he, I don't think he thinks he'd benefit from any of those briefings. Uh, and very clearly that shows why we need these laws. If we do have state premiers who don't feel restrained in that way, who don't have the humility to recognise that while they might be experts in the delivery of um, let's say, health or education, they're not experts in the delivery of foreign policy, then clearly we're going to need federal uh, legislation to prevent that from happening. On the day that the story broke that Scott Morrison was making these steps, Daniel Andrews then said it was up to Scott Morrison to basically provide a list of places that he could do business with. Is that Scott Morrison's responsibility? <laughs> Frankly, I thought it was a pretty stroppy response from Daniel Andrews. It was quite it was a sass. response. 
um, uh, he, he, he looked like a, a, a toddler whose toys had been taken away from him and he was demanding compensation for his toys being taken away. I mean, where to begin with this? So the Belt and Road Agreement doesn't actually promote trade. There's nothing in it that facilitates trade between Victoria and China. And since Victoria has entered into the Belt and Road Agreement, trade has grown more quickly with other states in Australia like Tasmania, who are not participants in the Belt and Road Agreement. So it has not delivered what Daniel Andrews says it has. And of course, one of the things the federal government does focus on and is its exclusive uh, preserve to do so is international trade agreements. And this government has secured an enormous number of trade agreements with a range of trading partners, including China, but also Japan and Korea and Indonesia. We're negotiating ones right now with the UK and European Union. We are actively working to promote trade opportunities for every state and territory in the Federation, not just Victoria and certainly not as compensation for uh, this deal being cancelled. So, James, it's sort of an interesting thing because um, I wasn't really aware that there were that many trade agreements between states and foreign powers. We sort of talk a lot about states' rights on the Young IPA podcast and, and, and the idea of uh, states kind of competing each other with each other for good economic deals. Does this... Um, or not necessarily just good economic deals, but you know, on tax and regulation and things like that. Do you think th- that this sets a precedent that that might not happen in the future? Is there a situation where we want the states to compete with each other to get the best free trade agreement with, um, with other countries? Or is, is that something we shouldn't be worried about? I'm a very strong federalist, Pete. I think one of the um, unfortunate things that's happened in our federation in the last 100 years is that power, more power has gone to Canberra and, and power has been taken away from the states. But even I, as a very strong federalist, as a member of the Samuel Griffith Society in good standing, even I think that external affairs and foreign relations should remain as the sole preserve of the federal government and not the state government. And in fact, I share that view with our founding fathers at Federation, who very clearly set out in Section 51 of the Constitution, the exclusive powers of the federal government, one of which was over external relations. Um, There's nothing to stop states from entering into these agreements if they're in our national interest, by the way. Um, All they're required to do is disclose it to the federal government, um, seek out permission if they're gonna negotiate a new one, and the federal government will retain the power to veto it if necessary. So many of these agreements, probably most which are in the category of harmless, they're probably not really beneficial or negative, they're just harmless. Most of those could be should be able to stay in place, but it's the ones that are potentially harmful and that do undermine our national interest that will be vetoed and should be vetoed. Another criticism this is getting, I want your reaction to, is the idea that with the state of Victoria's economic uh, suffering under these restrictions, and it came out today that over um, more people receiving JobKeeper will be from Victoria than any other part of the country combined. Mm. This isn't exactly the time to be tearing up agreements which would bring in money. Mm. Well, you're right. Um, Victoria is in a very, very dire situation, and those figures released today are incredibly sobering and depressing. But they are the result of not the Belt and Road Agreement being axed, but they're the result of, firstly. COVID-19, which is outside of everyone's control. But secondly, what is in people's control was the Andrews government's response to COVID-19, the way in which they totally botched hotel quarantine, the way in which they've totally botched the tracking and tracing system to track down those cases when they do get out into the community. That's the reason why we're under stage four restrictions again in Victoria. Uh, And it falls on the Andrews government. It's their responsibility that we're in this situation. And what we need to get out of that um, is pro-growth policies at the state and federal level from all governments of all persuasions. And that will be involving cutting tax and cutting regulation and stimulating growth. And that will be a joint responsibility of both the Andrews government and the federal government. James, you, you mentioned briefly there uh, 
COVID-19. We sort of had comments today from health officials that perhaps lockdown wouldn't end in Melbourne uh, when it originally was scheduled for. What was your reaction to that? And what would you like to see the government do next in Victoria uh, with regards to restrictions and the lockdown? Yeah, I heard those comments today and frankly, I was concerned to hear them on behalf of Victorians because I am inundated with correspondence from people in Melbourne in particular uh, suffering under stage four lockdown who can barely contemplate getting through the rest of stage four in terms of their mental health and their well-being, let alone the economy. Uh, and they don't want the, the idea that it could be extended any further. Um, they think it's bad enough that the restrictions have been placed under already. So I would be very concerned if the restrictions, if the stage four restrictions were extended beyond the 13th of September, if we don't start to wind down the restrictions in an orderly way and give people uh, their freedom back, of course, based on um, good evidence and good medical evidence. But um, this should not be extended for a day longer than necessary. And if it is to be extended, a very, very high threshold of evidence would have to be met, and I have not seen it. I have not seen it from the Andrews government uh, for a long time that would justify anything of that nature. So we're recording this on Monday, and this morning, Josh Frydenberg was on uh, Channel 7 Sunrise and said uh, that he was very keen to see an exit strategy from Stage 4 and even cited the Australian Medical Association saying that the Andrews, uh, the Daniel Andrews government's handling of this is similar to a car crash. Would you share those concerns and assessments? Entirely. And uh, the reality is that these ongoing lockdowns are not sustainable. They can't keep going on forever like this. Uh, we did say after the first lockdown that we wouldn't be going back into lockdowns like this, that we couldn't go in and out of lockdowns because of the costs that we have. Unfortunately, we have gone into those lockdowns. Um, but the reality is we have to find a way of living with this virus. And it appears so far on the evidence, touch wood, I hope it remains this way, that the New South Wales government is managing this much better. They haven't, they've had the, the breakouts uh, that Victoria has. In, in, in this case, they've come from Victoria. They've effectively taken some of Victoria's breakouts. But they haven't responded with harsh lockdowns. They haven't responded with stage four. They haven't responded with a curfew or a five kilometre radius from your homes. They've responded by having what sounds like the best tracking and tracing system in the country. They get on top of the cases really quickly. They notify all their close contacts very quickly and they've been able to keep the numbers down. And that's what Victoria really failed to do. So Victoria needs to make sure that it is ready to do that so that we can get out of lockdown and we don't have to remain in it any longer than necessary. All right, James, let's move on to another topic now. Uh, we're talking about uh, this morning, Sherry Marks in The Australian reported that the Morrison government will launch an inquiry into foreign interference in Australian universities uh, and how Beijing has recruited a number of Australian academics um, to be part of the Thousand Talents Plan. Uh, this co committee is chaired by your fellow Wolverine, Andrew Hastie. Why is this so important and what do you hope it uh, to achieve? Yeah, this is a really welcome announcement uh, today and something that Andrew and I have been working on together for a little while now. We, In fact, it was about a week ago in another article by Shari Markson when she revealed this, the extent of the Thousand Talents program in Australia that both Andrew and I called for an inquiry. Uh, an inquiry at the parliamentary level and a broad-ranging one at that is really important because... Uh, we need to shed some light on what's going on here. What Shari Markson's revealed in The Australian is that there are some universities who have academics who have entered into these thousand talents arrangements with Chinese universities that they weren't even aware of 
And there are other universities that knew that their academics were participating in this program, but didn't apparently know the details of it, including that uh, patents had been filed in the name of their academics in China, effectively claiming sole ownership of their research when it was in fact in some cases funded by the universities and in other cases apparently funded by Australian taxpayers, by the Australian Research Council. So these are deeply uh, disturbing revelations. It's, um, it's extraordinary that the universities were not on top of this, that they weren't aware for this, that the transparency hadn't been provided to the public about these arrangements. I think it needs to uh, be exposed to sunlight, uh, that sunlight is the best in disinfecting here. And parliamentary committees are really good at doing that. And it's not just the Thousand Talents program, unfortunately. We've talked before about the situation at the University of Queensland with Drew Pavlou. We're all familiar with the situation at University of New South Wales with Elaine Pearson uh, and her, the way her, she was censored. Um, there's all the Confucius Institutes across our campuses. Monash University even entered into last year a relationship with a state-owned enterprise in China called Comac, which operates in the aerospace industry, which has been credibly accused of industrial espionage and which is involved in civil military dual-use uh, projects. Now, if universities are entering into these arrangements, uh, it's incredibly disturbing and uh, it needs robust oversight. I've just realised I might know someone who was on one of those uh, classes, so I might have to uh, investigate my own connections there. So... Uh, it sounds like a really good committee. I was just wondering, uh, is there a reason you're not on it? Because uh, you think about someone I want, would want on this. I mean, we've got Hasty as the chair, which is good, but I need some turn to James Patterson and some Kimberly Kitching as well, I would reckon. Oh, it's good to have you in my corner, James. Uh, if you write to the Prime Minister, that would be very helpful and, and let him know. I'm sure he'd value your feedback. Um, but in all seriousness, uh, it's a great committee of some of my, the colleagues that I have the most trust and confidence in. Andrew Hastie's the chair, but also on that committee is Amanda Stoker, Tim Wilson, Julian Lisa, Erica Betts and David Fawcett. That's just the Liberals. Uh, and they are people who uh, are of completely the same view as I have on these issues. So I have full confidence in their ability to execute this uh, in, a, in a very appropriate way. Are committees something that politicians like to be on or do they sort of try and avoid it, like in terms of, you know, your workflow? Not too yeah. many committees or any committees good? So, well, some committees are more desirable than others yeah, and okay. uh, you are allocated them part on based on your experience and you are part um, based on your interests, but also the time that you've served. So, for example, I chair two committees. I chair the Senate Finance Committee, which looks after mm. the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet and Department of Finance. And I chair the uh, Joint Committee on Corporations and Financial Services, which oversights ASIC and, and the Corporations Act. And for my sins, I'm also the Deputy Chair of the COVID-19 Committee. So I'm not at about the highest level of committee workload you could possibly have. So I'm not looking All to right. add to that at the moment. Um, but uh, but when I first started, I, I was on more junior committees and I had more junior roles. And it's something you, you gain over time. Cool. All right, brilliant. Uh, Senator James Patterson, now it's a super busy day for you over there. So thank you so much for your time. Pleasure, gentlemen. Anytime. Thank you. Okay, we're now welcome back onto the show. One of the good friends of the Young IPA podcast, Liberal Democrat State MP, David Limbrick. Welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so you are one of the crossbenchers that Daniel Andrews is currently negotiating an extension to the state of emergency powers here in Victoria. So we just want to ask you up top, what do you make of the proposal to extend the state of emergency powers? Firstly, I'll just correct you. Um, the government's not negotiating with me about anything to do with the extension of the emergency powers. I've been very clear that um, we won't support any extension of the emergency powers. And if the government's negotiating with crossbenchers, Maybe they are. I mean, I've seen that in the media, but they're not negotiating with me. Uh, so 
that being the case, they are still looking at a lot of other crossbenchers. I'm seeing Fiona Patton in a lot of reports as to some people that he is negotiating with. So it is a situation in which it's hanging by a thread whether or not they will be able to extend the state of uh, emergency powers. Now, the latest reports have Fiona Patton has negotiated a deal where there's like a six-month extension. I was just wondering if you or any of the other crossbenchers had supported that or if there is any way in which you would support it. Uh no, I won't support it. I won't support six-month extension. I won't support a three-month extension. I won't support a one-month extension. I won't support a one-day extension. The powers end after six months, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but uh, as for other crossbenchers, I mean, I can't speak for them. Uh, I've spoken to... I mean, many of them have put out public statements that they won't support uh, a six-month extension. Um, so, you know, who is actually supporting that? I don't know. Um, Adam Somurek just confirmed this morning that he won't be voting. Uh, he'll be abstaining. I was wondering about that. I think a lot of people have been wondering about that. Um, I don't know about the Greens, where they're sitting on this. They've been totally silent. Um, so I, I don't know where they're sitting either. But most of the crossbenchers that I've spoken to or have put out public statements saying that they won't support six months, um, some of them may support three months. I think um, Catherine Cumming indicated publicly that she might be willing to support three months. And I know the Libs have put forward a proposal to do it month by month with parliamentary um, oversight on it. So, um, yeah. It's a shame that Adam Somurek is uh, abstaining because if he was against the extension of the lockdown, he does seem like someone who'd be able to drum up the numbers. Now, what is your opposition to the extension of emergency powers, David? Okay, so I've got lots of <clears throat> lots of problems with it. But firstly, the government's known from day one that they had six months to come up with either specific regulations or solutions to managing the pandemic that are compatible with a free society. They haven't done that. What they've done last week, they've waited till the last minute, they've come back to us and said, oh, we just want the emergency powers for another year. So that's point one. I don't think that they've done what they're meant to do with this time-limited emergency powers. Secondly, um, the, my biggest concern is around the powers that they've been using and the harms that are being caused from the government actions, I don't think have been properly accounted for. I'm talking about the long-term harms. I don't think they've been properly accounted for and communicated despite my uh, continuous and questioning at public accounts and estimates committee hearings. I've, I've questioned the CHO, the Attorney General, the Health Minister, the Police Minister. I've questioned everyone about these harms and no one seems to have done the calculation of the benefits that they think they'll get from these harms that they're um, putting, that they're inflicting on the Victorian people versus the long-term harms, versus the long-term harms from their actions. and. I just don't think that they've done that. And there's no, therefore, it's impossible to justify their actions. You know, they, they may be actually killing more people over the long term. We've heard from many people about this. There's ways of analysing this. You can do it with quality adjusted life years and things like this. I'm very, very concerned about the effect on children and on mental health over the long term. Um, we've had children locked up. And this is one of the most shocking things to me when I questioned the education minister last week about this it's very clear and they've stated this explicitly so this isn't me speculating this is their stated strategy is that the reason that they've shut down the schools was 
to uh, lower overall activity in the community, okay? Now, think about what that actually means. That means that they've made a moral calculation to sacrifice the well-being of our children in order to you know, protect the wider community or protect other sections of community. Where's, been, where's the discussion been about this act? Like, who decided to sacrifice the future of our children like this? Like, they've got to come out. They, they have to justify their actions with the long-term harms. And they obviously they acknowledge that these harms exist because they keep saying they keep throwing money at it. You know, they call them these packages, right? They keep throwing these packages trying to fix these harms. And, you know, of course it's not going to fix all the harms. They, they're trying to desperately alleviate some of these harms that they're causing. I don't think that they've communicated these harms properly and I don't think that they've done... I don't think that they've weighed it up properly. I don't think they've got the balance right at all. And they keep they keep um, acting as if there's this like only a binary approach, right? As if as if we either do what they say or you know we just let it rip and like there's some morally reprehensible thing to do. But it's a it's a totally false dichotomy. They've relied on they've relied on the stick. Like their one response to everything, their first, second, last response to everything has been the stick. Not once have they tried voluntary compliance. I mean, the, the example I keep bringing up is masks. I mean, the CHO, when they come up with directions, it actually says in the legislation that they're meant to come up with the least restrictive response. Is there a single person in this state that thinks that the government is using the least restrictive responses here? I mean, it's absolutely crazy to think that. And masks is the best example, I think. It's like they didn't even try asking the Victorian public uh, to wear masks. They just went straight into for mandatory compliance. We've seen the consequences of that with police having to, you know, arrest people and stuff on the street because they're not wearing a mask, which is absolutely insane. And we have this situation where they've just become totally dependent on the emergency powers. They haven't tried to come up with solutions that are compatible with a liberal democracy. They haven't even tried it. And they say, oh, we have to do it. Well, that's just wrong. It's a lie. Like other countries have had, um, like, and the example I keep bringing up is Japan. They were constitutionally prevented from doing this sort of thing. They, they, they couldn't do lockdowns. They couldn't have mandatory masks. The government wanted to do it, of course, like every other government, they want power, but they didn't have the power to do it under their constitution. And so what they did is they had a big education campaign and an advertising campaign and they sent people masks out in the mail, right? So, you know, and their education campaign was actually really sensible. It said, here's the situations where masks are useful. Here's how to use them properly. Here's the situations where they're not very useful. And, you know, please, citizens, make up your, your, your decision on risk based on this. And we hope that you'll do the right thing for your community and things like this. And that's the way that they went about it. There's no fines. There was no compulsion. They just educated people and, and did all this. And what we've seen with the response to whenever they make something mandatory, whoever resists that, they need to demonise it. And they're demonising everyone. I know they've demonised you guys. They've demonised everyone. And they demonise them. They either try to make out they're insane, they try to make out that they're a conspiracy theorist, that they're an extremist, that they're morally reprehensible. And the reason that they have to do that is because if they don't, if they don't attack and demonise these people, they might be the ones. They might be the bad guys. And this this is what this is what they're, they're concerned about is that people might do the calculations. I think and figure out that the government is actually causing harm here. So you know, I, I'm I'm just absolutely wild with the way that they've used these powers. 
and there's no way I'm going to support it, not for a single second. Sorry, James, if I could just jump in there, mate. I want to ask a question, David, about, so just on that point of comparative harm, um, we saw a report over in the UK which, which said before this started, and it was modelling, which is always wrong, but it was, it was an estimate that before this started, that I can't remember the exact figure, uh, lockdowns would cause tens of thousands of deaths because of delayed screenings uh, for, for cancer and stuff like that and delayed elective surgery for cancer and things like that. Um, given that the estimate of the number of people that they thought was going to die in Australia with a lockdown was 50,000. And given that that figure is only about 600 at the moment, do you think it's likely that maybe that, and, and presumably they've got calculations somewhere, although you're saying they're not of uh, the number of people that lockdown is killing. Do you think it's likely that given that they were, that the number of people that have died with a lockdown is like 1% of what they thought it would be, that the number of people they're actually killing with lockdowns is, is higher? Well, the government hasn't released any of their um estimates on this I'm, I'm, i don't even know if they've actually done estimates on it like that is um, i can't that is amazing that they wouldn't have done well, who estimate. knows i mean you know I've, I've spoken to um people uh, experts about this um you know i've spoken to um new zealand epidemiologist uh, dr simon thornley i've spoken to economists from new south university of new south wales uh, professor gg foster she she was i was talking to her about the harm she's she's an expert in behavior economics and this sort of thing. And she was saying that, um, uh, you know, if you look at the types of harms, you know, and the harms that you mentioned are absolutely real, you know, people delaying surgery, um, these sort of things. She, she seemed to think that mental health long-term harms would be by far um, the biggest component of any harms, especially for young people, for children, um, which is also my biggest concern. But there's a whole bunch of other concerns here. Like, um, all of our medical research and stuff at the moment is all focused on coronavirus. So there's like massive opportunity costs with other medical research that we could have been doing. Um, there's all sorts of crowding out effects in the economy, like everything's focused on this. I mean, you know, unemployment, business losses, you know, poverty, right? You know, if they, if they increase poverty over the long term, that reduces the tax, the possible tax revenue, which reduces the capacity of the health system to even function. I mean, there's all these sorts of harms and, you know, they, they try and demonize anyone who criticizes this as if they, they say, oh, well, why, why aren't you caring about people's lives? You just care about the economy. Well, the economy is people's lives. The economy is the, the, the interaction and human cooperation of everyone in our state, right? It's, it's the way that people cooperate. It's the way that they make make every, our society more prosperous. It's the way that we get the taxes to pay for our healthcare system. So, I mean, you know, this idea that it, you know you you don't care about people's lives, you only care about the economy. It's a total lie. What how what changes would you like to see in Victoria come September fourteen to what the situation is right now? I'd like them to come up with a plan that doesn't rely on using a stick. I mean, they've got carrots, they're throwing money all over the place. Why can't they use carrots? I mean, we've seen in the quarantine thing, they they used all their emergency powers to set up these quarantines. I'm not even convinced that the quarantine didn't make the disease worse rather than help people. Like, you know, would it have been better to just say to people, well, we'll draw up a contract with you and if you stay home for two weeks, we'll give you two grand and we'll come, up, come around your house to check that you're adhering to the contract or something you know like that would be far better like it sounds like the the quarantines actually spread the disease rather than prevented it i mean 
you know, I'm not convinced about a lot of the government actions here. I, I, I want to, what I'd like to see is focused protection, right? It's very clear, like they keep saying that this virus doesn't discriminate, which is another lie because it absolutely does discriminate. There's very clearly identifiable groups that are more vulnerable to the virus, right? So I'd like to see more focused protection rather than spreading everything, all their resources out and having this massive policing effort, which is clearly causing resentment amongst the community. We've already seen, you know, small scale civil unrest. That's only going to get worse. I want them to focus on the groups that are vulnerable to this and focus as much attention as possible on those groups and let as many other people as possible get on with their lives. So, David, over the weekend, Victoria saw cyclists being ID'd. We saw unmarked drones flown around and police helicopters monitoring parks. What's your reaction to all that when you say that, particularly as someone who's a um, you know, very philosophical doctrinaire libertarian? Oh, look, I mean, you know, with the drones, I've asked about this many times in parliaments and, and at the Public Accounts and Estimates Committee hearings. Um, I have concerns about the safeguards on what the, um, what the drones are being used for. Like, you know, I don't... You know, they, they say that they just use the footage in line with all their other, you know, footage guidelines and IT security and stuff. Well, you know, okay, but it hasn't, hasn't, I don't, I'm not convinced that they've got social license to conduct mass surveillance. I've got no objection to drones being used to, you know, investigate crimes or, or, um, you know, gather evidence when there's ever, some sort of crime that they need them for. I mean, you know, they're a very useful tool that could be used for responding to crime. But as a means of general surveillance and deterrence, no way. Like, this is this is just wrong. And, and the fact that they're unmarked, I mean, you know, like, they, they're just spying on people with these unmarked drones. People don't even know. There's enough paranoia already in the community without adding to it by this sort of thing, right? Um, I, I, I just don't think that they've got a good handle on how negatively people view this sort of thing. When they find out about it, they're shocked. Uh, glad you brought up paranoia because one of the more depressing things about this lockdown, certainly in the last week, is the level of public support that it has in Victoria, uh, especially with the regards to that Roy Morgan poll that came out last week and similar polls all around Australia that show widespread support for some of the restriction measures. Uh how do you make sense of the support that the governments all across Australia are getting for their draconian restrictions? Didn't, isn't that the same company that predicted we'd have a Labor federal government? I mean, you know, and and how are these polls done? Like they're done by, via SMS, right? So they're not they're not the entire community. They're the part of the community that responds to random SMS messages on their phone. Like who's that? Do you respond to them? I wouldn't. <laughs> Who, who are these people? I, I don't know. I think it's 80% of the people that respond to random messages on their phone support it. I, I don't buy it at all. If I've had thousands and thousands of emails coming to my office opposing this. I've had like two or three now that support what the government's doing. Phone calls, I haven't had a single phone call that's coming to my office supporting this. If people actually support it, why aren't they, why aren't they saying anything? You know, why don't they phone up their MP and say, please support the government because we think the government's doing the right thing? Like, no one wants to say that. You know, it's just, I, I don't buy it. Well, there you go. So you, you, as I mentioned, like a very um, 
like a doctor, I would say doctorate libertarian, like you're, you're very, very sort of philosophical libertarian. I, uh, I like to say I have principles, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, that, that was a compliment. But um, they, so um, what was I going to say? So I've asked this to a few people and I, you've sort of convinced me that actually maybe, maybe it's not, um, it's not that sort of uh, difficult a question for people to, for you to answer, but how do you reconcile sort of, you know, being a really committed libertarian with a, a pandemic um, and, and the extra government uh, powers that happen in a pandemic? Is that something you found personally, like you've felt like it's been difficult for you to sort of, you know, want the, I want the government to do a bit more extra stuff than they usually do, even though I'm a libertarian or it's been, been okay? Oh, look, I mean, I'm not... Um... I'm not an anarchist, right? I, 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 I've read a lot of Hayek and, you know, he speaks explicitly <laughs> about pandemic responses and how there is a role for the government in pandemic response. I do believe that there is a role for the government in managing pandemics. I do believe that, you know, the government can manage things like um, education campaigns and protecting groups in community, um, providing, uh, you know, collecting good evidence and that sort of thing. I, I don't think that the government should be just totally uninvolved in this, but I do think that there is a, a very clear imperative of on, on, on the government, and this isn't because I'm a libertarian, this is because, you know, I'm a believer in liberal democracy as well, and I think every Australian should care about this, that they have to come up with solutions that are sustainable over the long term and compatible with a free society, right? This, this is the important thing, and they haven't shown any tendency to do that whatsoever. I mean, this this is why I'm opposing these powers. When they first started using the powers, um, this wasn't something that was voted on by Parliament. The government just declared it. I stated at the time that, you know, I'm not happy about the government having... I, I stood up and said in Parliament, you know, I'm not happy about the government using these powers. I'm not, you know, I, but, you know I'm not going to interfere with it because I acknowledge that there is a role for government in responding to this sort of thing. And, um, you know, I think that's a reasonable response. And, and the other thing that I noted was that it was time limited. Um, you know, it said in the legislation they had six months and I was hopeful at that point, um, I'm less hopeful now, that the government could come up with solutions within that six-month time period. You know, maybe they need... You know, they've spoken about things like um, workplaces, right? Why didn't they come up with specific legislation for workplaces or you know, change the work safe rules and things like this for workplaces. They haven't done that. Like, why didn't they do that? Um, mask wearing, like, you know, why did we go straight to mandatory compliance? Why didn't we try it? When the Premier got up, this was the day before masks became mandatory, the Premier got up at a presser and he said, oh, I'm very happy to see, I can't remember the exact words or the exact number, but he said, I'm very happy to see so many people already wearing masks and you know, I think he estimated it was like 80% of people that he saw. So he's already said that they've got 80% compliance without even trying. You know, if they had some education campaigns, a bit of advertising and stuff on top of that, maybe they could get it up to 90. 90% is probably good enough, right? You're always going to get some people who either they can't wear a mask or, you know, they don't want to or whatever. There's going to be a proportion of those. And you're going to have those even if it's mandatory, right? So... You know, if they can get it up to 80 or 90% voluntarily and not rely on emergency powers, then why haven't they even tried that? David Lindbergh, thank you so much for your time. No worries. Thanks for having me. 
All right, thank you to James Patterson and David Limbrick. So we've got three stories at the end here. I know it's a very long show, but let's get started because full stops are intimidating. That is uh, from the UK Telegraph this week. A study from Binghamton University in New York suggested that people who finish messages with full stops are being perceived as insincere to young people around the world. Pete, your takes. Well, I'm usually intimidated by the bits in between the full stop in my experience, but um, I don't understand why people have lost faith in experts. You know, all they, they just trust the science. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't understand this. What, what's your... I mean, I have never been intimidated by a full stop at the end of a sentence. Uh, you know, you could argue that I'm not the, the young people, the, the target age group that they're talking about. What about yourself? Have you been intimidated by a full stop? Uh, no, I mean, you're usually intimidated more by like the cave paintings. That would be, you know, oh. hark back to your childhood. I... These are to go, look, I'm always a fan of throwing in an exclamation mark just to show a bit of excitement and a bit of enthusiasm in an email. Uh, yeah. But no, the most triggering thing that people can put in there is the Peter Gregory smiling emoji. Oh, cry laughing emoji. I know I said <laughs> it on the show last week, but it is intimidating because you know he's having a go at you. Oh, it doesn't. It just means I'm laughing. It does. It just means I'm laughing. <laughs> Other people have said the smiley, the smiley face crying person is for very, very funny stuff, and I use it for too much. I just use it for regular funny stuff, but it's definitely not an intimidatory, <laughs> an intimidation thing. No, uh, test case. Uh, test case. It, it okay. would be me going it's like, hey, can we record at 10.30, and you would say, I thought it was 11, mate. Cry face emoji. No, it's like, oh, <laughs> Peter. <laughs> that, that is what you would do. That does sound a bit, uh, I, don't, I can't use that word. That sounds a bit intimidating and a bit aggressive, but I've don't, that didn't actually happen. When does that happen? I'm going to take screenshots over this week. <laughs> All <laughs> Every right, time look, it happens. Just, just to bring it back to full stops triggering young people, Leiden University, I don't know if you read this quote out already, but he, she said, if you add that, well, I'll say her name, Dr. Lauren Fontaine from Leiden University said, um, it's already obvious that you've concluded the message, right? If you message someone and you've sent the message, it's already obvious that it's sent and that you've finished speaking. So adding a full toss, a full toss, a full stop is passive aggressive. Do you agree with that? Yeah, but I'm the king of um, pressing send because I've got fat thumbs and they don't really do what I want them to do. I always send a message halfway through a sentence and I've got to come in with the rest of the sentence later. So full stop is, okay, there's no follow-ups here from Bolt. Oh, I'm just going to say <laughs> that I'm not convinced by this. All right, do you want me to move on to Adele? Because Let's do it. Adele, like I love Adele. I wouldn't say that I love like a broad range of her songs, but the songs of hers that I do love, I really love. Like she's, she's very talented. I wouldn't exactly anyway. say she's got a broad range of songs anyway. It's <laughs> Don't you she's one note. Crack- she hits, she hits the note very well, but she's got one note, which is, I'm sorry we broke up. That is, oh yeah. Okay. Maybe, but she does that one very well. Uh, mm. Anyway, anyway, Adele's been in the news this week. She said the singer shared a photograph of herself wearing a bikini painted with a Jamaican flag. Now, Adele's not Jamaican. And her hair tied in Bantu knots, which is a traditional African hairstyle. And this was to mark the Notting Hill Carnival. Now, obviously, she got the backlash on social media from knuckleheads, mostly in America, but all around the world, saying that it was cultural appropriation. Uh, This led to a number of people actually defending her and saying, no, no, Adele is from uh, Tottenham, which is is near Notting Hill, I I assume. Um, And that this festival, the Notting Hill Festival, was... um, invented in 1996 to as a celebration of, of Notting Hill and the surrounding areas, interracial community and, and interracial cooperation between people and the, the idea that people of different races can get along and the idea that, um, you know, even if we are different races, we're from the same community and that's 
Wonderful. Now, what a quaint idea that was in 1996. I wonder if they envisaged the situation we're in at the moment in 2020 when they came up or with that. Or just social media in general. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing, like, is there anything more 2020 than yeah. like... The other thing, like, so Adele, on the, like a woman puts herself on the thing, a photo of her wearing a Jamaican bikini. She gets told she's cultural appropriation on this thing called social media. But the other thing about this is it didn't even happen. Like the Notting Hill Festival didn't even happen. It was done virtually. But there's nothing more 2020 than that scenario. Virtual festival, cultural appropriation, social media, buddy, bust up for no reason. I'm done. I know I've got one more story, but I'm done. <laughs> all right. Well, I might have to do the rest of this show solo. No, all right. Peter Gregory is officially staying around. Yeah, uh, the only stay. thing I'm going to contribute to this story that hasn't been said already is I genuinely thought that was Katy Perry for the first five times I saw that photo. Okay. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's well, all I've got. Well, yeah. The, I should point out that David Lammy, who is the MP for the area, and Naomi Cam- Naomi Campbell were the people that, that defended her. So, you know, it wasn't all. It was a bit of a storm in a take up. But, all right. Yeah. Last story we got. Um, this is classic. So, yesterday, Senator Kim Carr had a bit of naughty time in the Australian Senate. Uh, you know, it could be writing. You could just have a very. Oh, low, no way. You reckon? He's sleeping. Man. I know it's a, it's a thick brush to paint someone with, but Senator Kim Carr was sitting right behind Christina Keneally, who was addressing the Senate, and uh, was just he was square in Nottyville. He was having a zoos. Mate, he owes her a beer because that is you can't do that. Like it's just you know it's just completely stitches her up. If you're in one of those positions right behind the person making the speech, you have to look engaged. You have to nod. You have to do stuff like that. I would just say if you're going to figure out who's sitting in the camera view, I mean, like it's only a few listed people. It's got to be your most energetic person. You can't you can't let Kim Carr be in that position. Especially like Kim Carr's been there for decades and, you know, he's, if he wants a snooze, he's going to have a snooze. So, yeah, but Kim Carr might not be the best choice for that position. But I, I, w- I won't hear a bad word said about Kim Carr because last week, I think it was, he, in listening to Dara, the IPA's Dara McDonald and Morgan Begg to the government's inquiry, um, said that he agreed with their position on how unfair it was that Australians couldn't leave Australia if they want to. So Kim Carr's had a, you know, he's probably stuffed one up, but he also had a, had a good one as well. So let's not be too harsh on Kim. Yeah, last thing I was going to say is like, yeah, I mean, I think you can be a little harsh because especially for Christina Keneally, you were going all out for that one. She was fired up for that speech and that just kills you. you what can't was the speech about? Like, I can't remember, but she, it's only like a 15 second clip, but she's all up and about. She's really animated about it and oh, tough look. Um, but, you know, I've definitely listened. No, I'm not. That, that, that's not as funny as I thought it was going to be. Sorry, I'm going to end the show <laughs> before I don't I know myself now. any further. Oh, that is it for the Young iPad podcast this week. Thank you to Senator James Patterson and thank you to David Limbrick. Uh, and make sure you're listening to this show every week. If you like it, listen to... Uh, sorry, if you like it, uh, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Tell your friends and family about it. We're available wherever people listen to podcasts and on YouTube. You can also listen to Looking Forward. That's out every week. The IPA with you, Gideon's Runaway Success for Podcasts. That is about... That is coming out thick and fast as well. Um, what else we got? We've got Viral Banter every fortnight. We've got Australia's Future. Go back and listen to that one. John Roskam and Tony Abbott talking about the Australian way of life. And great books of literature podcast right back in the vaults. And also Five Favourite Books. We've got a really exciting couple of episodes coming up of Five Favourite Books. So if you do want to hear Dr. Bella DeBrero talk about books, talk about Western civilization, subscribe to that because the next guest is... It's a big one. So... That is it for me. See you guys next week. See you guys. Thanks, Mitch. See ya.